Psalm 90 begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We praise you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for you are our dwelling place, our home, our refuge from generation to generation. You are eternal, and we are but dust. So we pause now and give glory, honor, and thanksgiving to you who lives forever and ever. Worthy are you. You created all things, and by your will, all things exist and are sustained. Father, your word tells us that you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. In your mercy, O Lord, regard not what we have done against you, but what Christ has done for us. So we ask that you forgive us. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Father, display your love toward your people in great love toward one another and in forgiveness extended to one another in great deeds of power and that enable us to flourish so that your beauty may be on display, your faithfulness to your people. Do this good work in us, O Lord, we pray. We come before you today laying our request before you, trusting in your great love for us and in your faithfulness extended toward us. We pray for Bill and Cindy Hay as Reverend Hay is in the hospital. Encourage Cindy as she cares for Bill. If it's your will, Father, heal Reverend Hay. We ask that you would be merciful to him. Give him comfort in his affliction. We ask that you would uh, be with Mike and Sandy Witten as Mike has surgery this week in Atlanta. May the doctors be your hands and have your mind. May Mike... Feel little pain as he recovers and recovers swiftly. May Sandy love and support Mike. May we worship together again soon with the Witten family for your glory, O Lord. We are grateful to you for all the ways uh, that you raise up many to do the work of ministry, both near and far. We are especially grateful that some of those who minister in your word are children of this church and that we're able to partner with them deeply in the spreading of the gospel. This morning, we praise you for the work of Maggie Mintz serving with Young Life in Auburn. We ask that you bless her ministry to students in the Auburn area. Strengthen her and protect her. Bring her your favor as she's working for your kingdom to come to the uh, students of Auburn High. Father, we praise you for the ways in which you allow us to participate in the moving forward of your kingdom. We praise you for these families who are joining us at Covenant today, the Bakers, the Comptons, the Jenkins, the Roberts, and we pray that they may be engrafted into our family very quickly. We also praise you for the sacrament of baptism that we've just observed. We pray that there's not a day in which Charlie Baker does not know you and your great love for him. As we enter this week of Thanksgiving, Father, we ask that you will satisfy us with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make our hearts thankful for your steadfast love your faithfulness, so that we may be able to rejoice and be glad. Be with us now, Father, as we turn our attention to the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive it. All for our good and your great glory, we ask these things in the precious name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
Well, as we roll into Thanksgiving this week, you might appreciate knowing that Moses had family troubles. Uh, It was even his own brother and sister who sometimes were a great support to him. Sometimes they were the opposite. Sometimes they opposed him. And uh, it's helpful to remember that that's part of the wonder of the scriptures. If, if I look at everybody's Instagram posts late Thursday and early morning Friday, I will see how perfect your family is, how wonderful everything is, and I'll be in awe of your glory. But when you read the Bible, you see that God's people are broken and messy and need help. So uh, it's wonderful that we have a, a, a biblical story that's really clear about how God's people need help. And part of what we're going to see today, and it's so perfect as we roll into Thanksgiving, uh, part of what our passage today is about and our sermon today is about is generational failure. There you go. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Generational failure. And then one of my favorite topics, leadership failure. Uh, And then uh, it's just not just generational failure, but generational failure and judgment. And not just leadership failure, leadership failure and judgment. But then we're going to see, finally, the most important point, which is judgment, which is salvation. So uh, let's turn our attention to the reading of Scripture now. We're in uh, Numbers chapter 20 and 21 today. It's a really important pivot in the book because there's really two main generations being described in the book of Numbers. There was that first generation that came out of Egypt and they were led in the wilderness. They had their little children with them, but they were the, the adult generation. And that adult generation did not believe in God's promises. And when they got to the promised land, they rebelled. And so we have a lot of, lot of stories about their rebellion and their unbelief and their grumbling and complaining and, and uh, their resistance to God's chosen leadership. And then this passage is going to show us what the next generation is like. This passage is about the very end of that first generation and what they've passed on to that next generation. So that's what we have today. Let's begin by reading Numbers chapter 20, uh, verse 1, most of chapter 20 here. It's on page 12 and 13, your worship guide. Please read along with me. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before Yahweh. Why have you brought the assembly of Yahweh into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs, or vines, or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to them, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock, For them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before Yahweh as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, 
and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with Yahweh, and through them he showed himself holy. Verse 22. And they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor on the border of the land of Edom, Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as Yahweh commanded and they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain, and when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Lord, we thank you that we hear your word, not just as ancient stories, but as your word to us. Would you please grant us open ears and soft hearts to hear your voice today? Would you convince us from your word that we need your grace? Humble us when we see our own sin patterns and help us turn to your son, our savior, again and again and find joy and rest and peace and hope and salvation in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, we're going to start today with our first point, a generational failure. Sounds like great prep for Thanksgiving to me. Um, And so just to highlight the very beginning of this, if you look at verse 1, it says that Miriam died there where they were as they were uh, traveling. And then at the end of the of this chapter verse 29 we're told verse 28 and 29 we're told Aaron actually did die and he died and they went for 30 days so basically what you have at the beginning and the end of this chapter are just death notices and by themselves not not even thinking about the stories of Miriam and Aaron uh, these death notices remind us of something this is the first generation dying out And the first generation, the very generation that God rescued from Egypt with all of his saving power and revealing all of his glory and all of his goodness, that first generation, when they got to the promised land, they didn't trust God. And so they didn't go in. And so then they wandered in the wilderness for 30 years because of their own unbelief. Their action of failing to go in was funded by their heart condition. They didn't believe in the promises of God. Two of them did. Joshua and Caleb, and they will go into the promised land, but no one else my whole generation, not even Moses' sister, Miriam, not even Moses' brother, Aaron, the high priest, they're not going in. And so this, this death notice reminds us that this generation is dying out and they're dying out because they didn't believe and they didn't trust. They didn't go in. 
and receive the gift. And God says over and over again, that I have given them, that I have given them, that I have given them. He doesn't have them in the land yet, but it's already theirs. It's his promise, it's his work, it's his gift. And uh, these, this generation, Miriam and Aaron's generation, that first generation, they won't receive the gift because they didn't believe. Okay, they, they failed to believe, to trust God in that important moment. But there's something else that's uh, being evidenced for us here. And that's in verses two and following. It's not just that first generation is dying out, but that first generation has passed something on to the next generation, to their children. And, and, and you know, uh, we could say they inherited a sin nature and they passed on their sin nature. And that's, that's true of all of us. That's generally true. But in this passage, we see something more specific. It's not just their general sin nature. They've passed from one generation to another. No, they've passed some pretty specific patterns of rebellion uh, that they've passed on to their children. So let's just look at that little section again, just verses two through five. Uh, I read this earlier and one of our elders was sitting in the balcony. And he was like, man, Robbie made a mistake. We've already read this passage before. It sounds like it. It sounds like it because that first generation did this over and over and over again. And now we're seeing the fruit of it in the second generation. Now, there was no water for the congregation, very severe providence. Who wants to raise their families and walk through the wilderness without water? And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Note the pattern. Let's attack the leadership. We don't like our circumstances. And so we're going to aim ourselves against the leaders that God has given us. Verse three, and the people quarreled with Moses. The word quarrel there uh, in, in other contexts is like when you take somebody to court. It's a very serious situation. And they said, so just listen to these words. They'll sound very familiar. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before Yahweh. Oh, we're so sad. We're the surviving members of this generation. We, we wish we died. And so you have just a few of that generation left, but it's the whole congregation. So it's the children who are going to go in and get the land. And the last few of the first generation, they, they wish they'd died. It would have been better off to have died than to live to see this moment. Verse four, why have you brought the assembly of Yahweh into this wilderness that we should die here? Both we and our cattle. Why, why Moses, did you bring us here? They know that it wasn't ultimately Moses. So their complaint against Moses goes beyond Moses, but they're making the complaint anyway. And then verse five, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt? That wonderful land of slavery and bondage where we had no rights and no privileges. Why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Uh, by the way, that selective memory, it wasn't actually God's plan for them originally to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, that was the consequence of not trusting him. It's no place, they're in the wilderness, it's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there's no water to drink. Well, the land flowing with milk and honey is a land of grains and figs and vines, but they had rejected that. And it's an interesting, they don't remember their failure, they're just looking at their circumstances. So let me boil it down to the main things that both generations did. First, the parents, and now we're seeing it in the majority here would be the second generation. They don't like their circumstances, so they complain. And having uh, disliked their circumstances and complained, eventually they decide they have the wrong leadership, so they attack the leaders that God has given them. Their, the parent generation did it over and over and over again, and now the, ne- the, the, the end of that generation, but the vast majority of the second generation, they're repeating the same patterns of sin. 
I don't like my situation, so I'm complaining, and I'm going to take a shot at the leaders God has given us. Do you know that in the Old Testament, there's that, the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms. Do you know what the most frequent type of Psalm is in the Psalter? You know what it is? It's called a lament. And you know what a lament Psalm is? A lament Psalm is when somebody who knows God and trusts in God is in a bad situation, in a difficult circumstance. And you know what they do? They turn to God and they say, oh God, I'm exhausted. Oh God, I'm worried. Oh God, things are not the way that I thought they would be. Where are you and where are your promises? And That's the most frequent type of psalm in the Psalter, lament psalms. And so just for a minute, note the difference between complaining, which God says is sin, and lament. The difference is the audience, but more importantly, faith. Complaining is when I tell myself or my friend, I don't like my circumstances, and there's no uh, effort to talk to God about it. Lament is complaining about the exact same things, but taking those complaints to God himself by faith. That's different between complaining and lamenting. Isn't it interesting that God, who is so wise and loving and kind, has given us a song book in the Old Testament. And the most frequent type of song is when God's own people say to God, my life hurts. Things aren't the way I want them to be. And so you and I are invited by this passage and comparing it to the, to the Psalter, to the book of Psalms, we're invited to learn how to complain to God by faith, which is called lament. Versus fill up our, uh, our neighbors and friends' ears with complaints that are faithless and godless. A huge difference. Interesting that we have a book like that. As a matter of fact, if you read the Psalms and look at the lament Psalms, many of them are individual laments. Some of them are individual laments by kings and some of them are other types of individual laments. And you know what they do? They take those individual laments and they go and give the lament to the ancient Rick Barnes, to the choir director. And you know what the ancient Rick Barnes does? He writes a tune and somebody's hurting. Someone's life is filled with pain and sorrow and anguish and they write about it and it's turned into music and then it's, everyone gets together and they sing the lament together. Why? Because God does care. Because God is filled with compassion and filled with love and he's made great promises to people. So God's people are invited to tell God, my life hurts. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of being in pain. I'm tired of being crushed by this situation. My marriage is way harder than I ever thought it would be. Raising children is way more difficult. People tried to tell me, but I didn't listen. And now I know they were right. The Bible invites us to take that kind of talk straight into God's presence and ask for his help. And it even invites us to do it together. That is lament It's a behavior, it's the fruit behavior, the root is faith. I'm hurting, so I'm gonna go talk to the only person who perfectly cares and has all the power to do something about it versus complaint, 
where I'm ministering to my own needs through unbelief. And so that's the, what we have here. That, that's what's been passed on. The central sin pattern here is complaining and critiquing leadership due to a lack of faith. But don't miss this. This point is about generational failure. We all receive from our parents and pass on to our children general sin, a sin nature. But it's helpful because of this passage today and also because Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Sometimes it's just helpful to take a break and ask ourselves, what are the particular patterns I've received and then I pass on to my children? What, what is it? Is, is it is, is the root pride? Is, is, it, is, it, is it anger? Is it uh, unbelief at times? Is it a, a spirit of complaining? Well, what is it that my children have learned from me, not from the written curriculum that I thought I would teach them, but from the hidden but more powerful curriculum of my life, my attitudes and my speech acts? It's very healthy and hopeful though challenging, to stop and ask myself significant questions. Of course, I've received and passed along to my children a general sin nature, but, but what more specifically? What are, the, what are the key patterns that I've passed along to my own children, to my own family? And, and churches can ask themselves similar questions as well. Well, I want to go from general, uh, generational failure and judgment uh, to see a little bit about God's grace and then look at also leadership failure uh, in just a second, we're going to see a real key piece of public leadership failure. But before that, I want you to see that it's not just generational failure and then judgment, but there's a lot of grace here. Uh, look what, this is God's response. Look with me in verse six, still in chapter 20. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly that are so mad at them and ask them these questions and attacking them. And they went where? To the entrance of the tent of meeting. They went to God's throne room. They went right to God's presence and they fell on their faces. So they're in the right place. God's presence with the right posture, deep humility. They started really well. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to them. God honored them. They, they came to him and they uh, took a humble posture and Yahweh spoke to Moses. This is amazing. Look at the generous grace of God. This is a response to the the grumbling and complaining and leadership attacking of the second generation mostly. Verse eight, take the staff and assemble the congregation that has kind of a formal ring to it. Like we're gonna have a courtroom here. You and Aaron, your brother. And here's what I want you to do, Moses. Tell the rock, speak to the rock in their presence before their eyes and tell it to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. I don't know. Uh, does that strike you as generous, <laughs> patient, kind, and gracious? The people are complaining. They don't trust God. And God says, Moses, we're going to do it again. I, I want you to go get, get the staff from my presence. I want you to go and stand in front of the people, stand in front of the rock, assemble the people in front of the rock. It would be like at the annual church meeting, the, all the people gathered, all assembled there and just speak to the rock. Can, can you imagine like what, what Moses could have said? He, can you imagine if Moses stands before the water and says, give us water, oh rock, 
by the power of Yahweh and Yahweh alone, the patient and generous, faithful God. Oh, oh, rock, your creator, he made you the creator, your creator rock. He saved this people from rebellion. He saved them from Egypt. He saved them when they were helpless. He's fed them manna every day. Every time they've had a need, he shows up in gracious power and meets their needs. So rock, he made you and pour out your water. I mean, that's, that would have been great. Speak to the rock, speak to the rock and the water will, will flow out. And now I want you to see the leadership failure that's in the passage. What does Moses do? He has the people assembled. He has the staff, just as he's told. He gets in front of the rock. And instead of speaking to the rock, he reprimands the people. Did you hear what he said? Here now, you rebels. I mean, you can't blame him really, but that's what he did. Shall we, who who does we include? Is Moses now taking credit, glory from God? Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. God's still really gracious, but did you see that Moses explicitly did not do what he was commanded to do? Now, you might, this story might sound familiar because way back when they first left Egypt, uh, they came to the place called Meribah, same name, and they needed rock. And God told him that he would stand on the rock And Moses would take the staff and strike the rock and water would come out. And that's what happened. God provided for his people miraculously water flowing from a rock. It's in Exodus 17. But in this case, it's a much later story. This is the end of that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And God said, take the staff, stand in front of the people, ascend the people, assemble the people and speak to the rock. He didn't say reprimand the people. He didn't say strike the rock. And so Moses is disobedient. I wonder how much that matters. Look at Yahweh's evaluation of Moses's action, the leader. Verse 12, and Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me. Same failure as that whole generation, because you did not believe in me to uphold me is as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. That, my friends, is the anatomy of every sin. You didn't trust me, so you did what you thought you should do versus what I said you should do. You didn't trust me and you didn't treat me with dignity. That's every sin. But here, what's going on is this is a very public leadership performance. Moses is the leader. He has all of God's people gathered in front of the rock. And it's supposed to be a time where the people once again see God's generous grace. You've been complaining. I'm going to give you all that you need. You and your cattle, just speak to the rock. But instead, Moses in his anger speaks in anger, acts in anger. God is still gracious. The water flows, but Yahweh saw Moses's heart. Now I'm, 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 I'm I'm pro Moses. I have a lot of empathy for leaders that fail and leaders that struggle, but God's evaluation here is really, really important. Moses got angry and acted in angry in the in anger in the bible it's not a sin to be angry but you can sin in your anger 
And so what Moses did is he doesn't trust God. And because you're thought about how lava is an illustration for anger, I think it's coming. I think it's coming. Oh yeah, it's coming. And then it blows. That's what happened to Moses in this situation. The anger, the lava erupted. So he rebuked the people, not what God told him to do. He didn't speak to the rock. He hid it, not what God told him to do. And what God says is, you didn't trust me. You didn't believe in me. And that helps us understand uh, a really basic way to think about faith. Simple faith, faith is doing what God says. Simple faith is doing what God says. And the other thing God said is, you didn't uphold me as holy. See, if Moses had said something to the rock like, rock, uh, give us the water because our God is faithful and this is what he told me to say, that would have illustrated that, that God was different, that God was other, that God was holy, that God was the gracious redeemer. But Moses, in his anger, took things in his own hands. Do you notice that God rebuked Moses and Aaron for this? But Aaron didn't say a word. Maybe you've noticed that about yourself. When, when certain situations go bad, maybe you're more like Moses. You're more inclined to get angry and uh, let people feel your wrath. Or maybe you're more like Aaron. Things aren't going well, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut and sit over here and see what happens. And both of them are critiqued as not believing Moses shouldn't have acted in anger and Aaron shouldn't let him have let him get away with it. This is a story about leadership failure and judgment. Did you see what the Lord said? And, and therefore you will not go into the promised land. That, that can seem super harsh to us. But don't forget the Lord's critique, a failure to believe and a failure to obey. And so just for a minute, think about it. I mean, if Aaron uh, fails, the high priest, Moses' own brother, who, who won't fail? If Moses, the mediator of that covenant at Sinai, the, the one that God set apart to be the redeemer of his people, the one who had the, the rod and staff in his hand, the one who saw the burning bush, the one who went up on Mount Sinai and was handed the Ten Commandments, the one who saw the pattern of the tabernacle. I mean, if Moses fails, who is not going to fail? And that leads us to the next passage. If you'll flip over in your worship guide uh, to page 14, I'm going to read just a little section here from Numbers chapter 21 because this once again shows us this is now fully second generation. Almost no one left from the first generation and once again, you're like, I think we just read these words, Robbie, but I want you to see the second generation. We've seen generational failure in judgment, leadership failure in judgment, but now I want you to see with me judgment and salvation or the judgment that is salvation. Look with me in verse four. They've been at this place called Mount Hor. They're on their way to the promised land. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness for there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Hey, this miracle bread you've been giving us every single day sustaining us in the wilderness until you bring us in the promised land and give us things that we can't even imagine they're so great. We're tired of it. We loathe this miracle food you're giving us every day, keeping us alive until we go into the promised land. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Can you imagine? 
40 years in, 40 weeks in, 40 days in, 40 minutes in, I could imagine losing patience, losing hope. And that's what happens here. And so uh, it's the same sin pattern, isn't it? The complaining, the attacking, attacking the leaders, at least this time they're honest about their lack of faith in God directly. And so what happens here again, you see judgment. Verse six, then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. That, my friends, is a judgment scene. They didn't trust God. They complained. They directed their complaints against God and against his servant Moses. And they said, we, we are tired of your life-saving gift, manna. We loathe it. And so the punishment fits the crime. We want to go back to Egypt. And you might can remember Pharaoh's big headdress and that big serpent on the front of it. Uh, they want to go back to Egypt. Well, there are a lot of snakes there. Let's meet some snakes. And so the punishment fits the crime. This is a judgment scene. Many people of Israel died. They didn't believe. They rebelled. They were bitten by snakes that God sent in his judgment. And the people came to Moses and said, here's a bright part of the passage. We've sinned, which is great, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and Yahweh said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Amazing. Now, uh, is this a scary judgment scene? It is. But then look how God moves in mercy. Imagine it, you know, you, you've been rebelling against God and complaining against God and one of these fiery serpents shows up and, and bites you on the right leg and you're, you, know, you prefer uh, your right hand and your right leg and now you've got to hop on your left leg all the way across the wilderness to hug a, to hug a serpent on a pole. Nope. You've got to crawl through the wilderness and, and grab onto the pole and, and kiss the serpent on the pole. Nope. You got to crawl across the, 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 the wilderness and, and grab the pole and fight people and, and hold the pole in both hands and say, please forgive me, O serpent. Nope. See, God's judgment came in these fiery serpents. And so what they did was they took an, an emblem, a symbol of God's righteous judgment and put it on a pole and lifted it in the desert. And so if you were bitten by a snake, you were going to die unless you did one thing. You just had to look. God took the symbol of judgment, his righteous judgment, and lifted it up. And if you wanted to live, all you had to do was believe. Take God at his word and just look at the symbol of judgment raised up from the earth. Just look at the serpent on the pole. There's the symbol of judgment. That's God's judgment that's fallen on us for our unbelief and our rebellion. And if you just look you will be saved. Now, I bet there's a few people in the room that have heard the most famous Bible verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. You remember it? If you've, if you've watched the Super Bowl, you've at least seen it uh, held up uh, in, in, you know, behind the, the, the end zone. John three sixteen. is there a more famous verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know that when Jesus says those words, he introduces that very famous statement with an allusion to this story. We read it just a little while ago. Let me read it to you again. 
Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. That's how he talked about himself all the time. He referred to himself as the son of man. And listen to what he says, John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you see what Jesus is saying? God's judgment is just and right. But God's salvation comes through judgment. The judgment sinners deserves falls upon the Holy One, the Son of Man, God's own Son. The reason you can look to Jesus and be saved is because he was lifted up on a pole to rescue you from God's righteous judgment. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for God so loved the world. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What a mystery of God's saving ways. God sent a righteous judgment on his people, fiery serpents in the wilderness. But he saved them by lifting up a symbol of his judgment. If they just looked at it, they were saved. God was preparing you and me for the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God looks at a sinful world, a world filled with complainers, a world filled with failed leaders. Aaron failed, Sherry did. Moses failed, Sherry did. We all failed, but his son did not fail. And his obedient son, who was perfect, he was the Kadosh, the holy, the very, very holy one. At the end of his life, he was lifted up on a pole and crucified in the place of the wicked so that if we believe, if we simply look to him by faith, we will be forgiven for all of our sin and have everlasting life in his name. For those of us who believe him, we'll meet him at his table and the rest of us will get to see another picture of God's saving grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to take our judgment so that we could be forgiven. Now, Lord Jesus, we come to you and we believe and we want our faith strengthened here at your table. So please strengthen our faith. Amen.